Hello, and welcome to Cream of Caroline, the longest-running casserole lifestyle podcast in America. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. It is finally cooling down in New York City. I think it's about 63 degrees today. So casserole season is officially upon us, and I am turning to Southern Living's 1983 Annual Recipes Cookbook for all the recipes for the next 10 or so episodes. And last week, we announced a cookbook giveaway for said cookbook. And Carolyn Stone of Augusta, Georgia, congratulations. Your book is in the mail. So for today, I have Chef JJ Johnson on air. He's a longtime friend, and he recently opened Field Trip in Harlem. It's a fast, casual restaurant that will change the way we all think about rice. I also invited the casserole doctor in for the first time to diagnose a few technical glitches in a sausage and wild rice casserole that I prepared. Get ready, y'all. It's going to be creamy. Casseroles in the news. For our listeners in Plymouth, Michigan, it's time to bust out your stretch bands for the VFW Auxiliaries annual all-you-can-eat casserole dinner. It's hosted Saturday, October 12th from 5 to 7 p.m., and tickets are just $5 for this must-attend dinner. Be sure to drop by and say hello to organizers Ruth Bryan and Patty Glasgow. Now, if you're in Topeka, Kansas this week, do not miss Green Bean Casserole, a play by Cassidy Tilden. The show will run October 10th to 13th at the Jayhawk Theater. It's a farcical comedy with a creamy plot. At Thanksgiving, young Sophie will announce to her parents that she is engaged to a man who may not meet their approval. Tickets are $10 in advance and $13 at the door. And mark your calendars. Le Creuset just announced a line of Star Wars-themed casserole dishes to be released on November 1st. In this incredibly natural brand collaboration, there will be a dish featuring Han Solo, frozen in carbonite, droid pattern cocottes, a Dutch oven with a Darth Vader lid, and more. Dishes will be available at lecreuset.com, Williams-Sonoma, and in outer space. And that's your casseroles in the news. Uh, listeners, hello. We have today for the first episode of season two of Cream of Caroline, chef owner of Field Trip Harlem, uh, co-author of the cookbook Between Harlem and Heaven, and winner of so many damn awards, so many projects, J.J. Johnson. What's up? Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad to just like have you in one place. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm more in one place than ever in my life. And maybe I, I, I still am running around because I have twins and I'm going left to right with them. But uh, I, I personally feel like I've slowed down in some areas where I was busy before, but I've picked up in the new areas of being like a business owner, founder, entrepreneur, uh, more than just like slinging pots and pans. No, you have a million things going on. I'm just <laughs> like the king of hustle, right? So you just, summer's... Summer's done, unfortunately, but you fed people at the U.S. Open this summer. You had a pop-up with MasterCard. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. So I'm a MasterCard uh, culinary brand ambassador for their Priceless program. I'm one of their new chefs that they just signed on, so that's very exciting. Uh, Shows that hard work pays off. Um, So we did something down at Spring Place. I did Mm -hmm. some stuff on the roof, uh, some small bites, like global-inspired rooftop. Uh, and then, yeah, second year back at U.S. Open, um, 
something that I the way I got in there is like I called a friend or I called somebody who used to work for that now is like high up and they got me in and uh, we were prime time this year and we're serving about 22 to 2,500 people per day wow. over three weeks so just touching the mass and for me I like take a step back when I'm at uh, the US Open and really learn about how people eat um, and why big brands do what, what they do really well and it really always, always comes down to consistency um, and knowing who you are as a brand and so what you're serving what other big brands are there there's like yeah, field trip. Well, yeah, no, but I mean, like, <laughs> if you look at it from, like, when I would say big brands, like Heineken okay. and Grey Goose, right? They know who they are. They know what they're supplying. They also can keep up with the demand. Mm-hmm. But then if you look at, like, Fuku or Hill Country um, or Melt Shop, right? These are growing brands that have been able to tap into a market that, was pretty defined, but they knew who, what they wanted to be, mm-hmm. and they knew who they are, and they know who they are, so they're able to then grow. Um, and I think Fuki does something like 55,000 sandwiches, chicken sandwiches wow. at the U.S. Open. Everybody loves chicken sandwiches. So, and that's what we learned was like, hey, we need to make sure that we have another chicken option on our menu, because when people hear field trip, they're thinking something in the field. They're thinking roasted. They're thinking braised. Um, so we'll be adding a new item to the menu because of the U.S. Open. So we're going to add like roasted jerk chicken okay, with red rice and beans and avocado, like something super craveable. Did you, I love jerk chicken. Did you grow up eating jerk chicken? I grew up eating. Because your influences are Puerto Rican, right? Puerto Rican, African-American, and West Indian uh, from Barbados. So Barbados, you don't see a lot of jerk. Some people do cook it, cook mm-hmm. jerk, like because they're, they they were friends with somebody from Jamaica or there was some Jamaican influence there or they went to Trinidad. So, yeah, I grew up with jerk pork, like whole roasted, okay. like the whole roasted hog in the summer. I remember as a kid um, going to Long Island to family's house and we would have a hog roast and I would, like, go underneath the chef and, like, he would teach me how to, like, whole roast this hog mm-hmm. and we would basically eat every part of it. So as I've, gro- as I've grown older... I've come to a realization that I've always been around like this type of style of food my whole life, this craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really know many kids that were at like whole hog roast unless yourself, if you were from the American South. Uh, yes, uh, there was a trailer in the background <laughs> uh, with swamp cabbage and a whole pig. It was a little different. But no, I mean, so my West Indian, so you would have that, you would have rum cake, but that that chef or that the family member would be rubbing and basting that hog with this jerk seasoning I remember jerk really just means to cook underground mm-hmm. um, it comes from Taino's it's not really a Jamaican thing that we all think it is so uh, you do see it all throughout the West Indies uh, but especially in the the British Virgin Islands now I don't I don't think I knew that you had a Barbadian influence I made have you had macaroni pie well 100% that's ma- the one thing that my grandfather after my grandmother passed away, my grandfather, he would make every holiday was macaroni pie. So I made that for the last episode of the season one of the podcast for um, Andre Springer, who makes Shaquanda's hot pepper sauce. Okay. So that was the only Barbadian casserole that I could find So what in the did canon. You? No, I did it. I got an internet recipe. It was like grated onion, ketchup, mustard, yeah. egg, milk, so much cheese. A lot of cheese. And sa- like eight cups of cheese. Mm-hmm. And he said it probably should have been a little bit more custardy. It is like a very custardy, 
Like when you cut it, it should like ooze a little bit. Yeah, so mine didn't, but it tasted it tasted right. That's great. As long as it tastes right, you good. And I put some of his hot sauce in as well. So, but so no Pennsylvania Dutch stuff or nah, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch is like great, great stuff. But yeah. you know, my 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 <laughs> my mom's parents retired from Long Island, um, and they moved to the Poconos. They sold their house out here in like one week. Um, so yeah, my mom got recruited to be a school teacher and we moved that way. And most of the meals came from my Puerto Rican grandmother and my two great aunts that lived with my grandparents. So they were her sisters. Mm-hmm. One was married to a Cuban guy, um, but he left during, he left her during the Fidel Castro days and went back to fight. So we, you know, we had some Cuban stuff that was in the household cause she just learned how to cook those, those dishes. So there was, it was a very Puerto Rican, Afro-Puerto Rican household. But I remember I used to say to my mom, like, how does my grandfather know how to dance salsa? And my dad would be like, well, it's the same thing as Calypso. And you would see these different names, you know, different words being used to define different culture, but it was very much similar. Mm-hmm. And that's just what I was around. Do we go out to eat a lot? No, I would go out to eat when I was older with my, with my aunt and my uncle. My uncle owned a crab boat and uh, from Virginia. Very cool. Like okay. Eastern Shore with his brothers and you know we used to eat the best crab meat in the summer times uh so i would always go out to dinner with them because they were very into food so you know i ate escargot i ate clams on the half shell i ate all these things especially when i said i wanted to be a chef my uncle would always be like you need to know what it tastes like before you add stuff to it yeah um, Especially so good seafood. Everybody was grooming me at a different era, <laughs> at a different point in my life to be who I am. Uh, my mom kind of taught me to stay humble, and my dad kind of taught me the hustle. Okay, that's where it comes from. Yeah. So, did you eat casseroles, though? Yeah, definitely ate casseroles. My mom was like the queen of macro, the queen of baked beans and mm-hmm. barbecue chicken, uh, or one the one pot wonder. Um, or baking everything in one. I mean, my mom was also like the queen of shake and bake. Oh yeah, I did that too. <laughs> I did that too. So. I mean, shake and bake was good. I can't. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, the MS- uh, Does it have MSG? I assume it has MSG. Yeah, but the MSG tastes good. Of course. So everything I'm cooking for this season comes out of a Southern Living cookbook from okay. 80, from '83, and um, I made you something vaguely themed to go for with your restaurant. So I made a wild rice casserole Ooh. Uh, with some sausage from the farmers market and really lovely vegetables, and uh, and then a can of cream of mushroom soup. So you consider wild rice rice? Oh shit! I think so. Is it not? No, wild rice is a grain. Are you serious? I mean, rice is a grain, but wild rice is a grain. It's not in the rice. Really? Family. Why do we call it rice? I'm not sure. Oh my gosh, I'm going to learn so much today. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about field trip because I, apparently I have a lot to learn about rice. JJ and I also had this lovely experience. We went to India together to rice fields. Bas- we did good. Basmani rice fields. <laughs> uh, my, only, my only trip to Asia thus far. <laughs> Uh, JJ I flew. Forgot we went to India. You flew first class, and I flew by, <laughs> uh, in the back, like near the bathroom. I don't think they put me in first class. I think they sold me a dream. But it was I did have better seats than you, so much, but, much better. But seats. you slept the whole flight. I couldn't even sleep in those seats. I oh, whatever. I don't feel sorry for you. <laughs> so field trip, Harlem. Tell me about it. Uh, yeah, field trip is like really simple. It's a rice bowl shop uh, that has you know global flavors. Uh, each rice bowl is 
inspired by the rice in the bowl. When I mean that, our tech, our brown rice comes from Texas, so it's very Tex-Mex. Okay. Um, so it's like barbecue brisket, um, chipotle black beans, and that's the inspiration is that that's what that that's where that rice is, and this is what you would eat with that rice. Was that was that the one with the turmeric yogurt? Is that yes, the one that's I had? only turmeric okay. yogurt. That's yeah. really good. Okay. Yeah, turmeric yogurt's coming off, but it's gonna be the brisket's gonna be barbecuey. Okay. You know, it's it's taking these heirloom grains from the pockets of the world, these communities of the world that ate rice as part of their culture. So I'm highlighting like China black rice, which we call forbidden black rice, but this is the original grain before forbidden black. And the reason why you call it forbidden black is because the rich were eating China black, the poor wanted to be rich, so they started dyeing their rice and nobody knew what rice was what, who was rich, who was poor. And that's why you have forbidden black rice. Okay. Um, or, you know, our sticky rice comes from Lao because Lao farmer, the Laoanese, taught uh, the Philippines when there was war how to grow sticky rice. Okay. So th- we're going back to the original place uh, of that heirloom grain. Um, and none of the rice is bleached or enriched. Uh, it's very interesting when we're calling farmers and asking them about, <laughs> is their rice bleached or enriched? Some people would hang up on us. Some people would be like, why are you asking that question? Others would be like, of course my rice is not bleacher and rich. But it's a, that's the American way of eating rice. We bleach our rice, we enrich, we pull out all the nutritional factors, we push it back into the rice. And it's not good for us, that's why many people don't want to eat rice. But we do eat it every day. So, and how did you choose and decide what rice to put on the menu? And is it going to rotate? Uh, no, I mean, Glenn Roberts was my, is my mentor on the project. He was the one that's telling me to look into these areas and look at this rice. Um, and this is of Anson Mills. Glenn Roberts of Anson yes. Mills, yes. Yeah, so okay. for over two years, three years, I worked closely with Glenn. He introduced me to a rice researcher. Uh, that rice researcher from Cornell was has been researching West African grains, West African rice grains, and I've always been looking for a specific West African rice grain, which is like the mother rice to all the rices of the world. And we're getting, I feel like we're get, we're getting closer and closer each time of finding this rice grain. So we just found these rice farmers in upstate New York that potentially might have a strand of the grain. Um, but yeah, the rice won't rotate. The base of the rice is Carolina gold rice because that's the rice of the American South or of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, Basmati rice is the rice of India. Um, so it's two year aged. Uh, Lao, sticky rice, China black rice, Texas brown. And Texas brown, unless you find this mother grain from... Yeah, and then we hope to, like, so, but every month I get at least one rice farmer in the in the world that reach out to me asking to put their rice on our menu. Mm-hmm. So right now I have a rice farm from Brazil. I have the two gentlemen brothers from upstate New York. I have this rice duck, this duck farmer from Vermont. That one that has this rare um, Japanese sticky rice that he's trying to sell to me. So right now I have like three rice farmers. So I, I hope that by the end of this year, we'll do one like focus bowl with mm-hmm. like for the month of November, maybe into December. So November to be with these ingredients and December to be like this. And then maybe doing some collaborations with chefs or philosophers or just people that represent that rice. So if it's like a Japanese rice, like who would be cool to team up with to, to highlight this Japanese rice or if we're going to Brazil, like 
who would be awesome to do something with them with, like a chef or somebody. So, yeah, I hope to really change the way that people are thinking about rice and, you know, all. So, but why rice? Why, like, why rice in the first place for you? Well, we all grew up on rice. Like, my, our kids or my kids, the like first ingredient they got were, like, rice grits. And most people give their kids rice as their first ingredient. Problem is it is so disrespected here in the United States. Um, so rice for me, we, I define it as culture. So rice is culture. That's our slogan. And every culture, I think, except for Russia. And But somebody told me the other day it's Russian that they eat rice because they're next to, like, some country I never heard of before on the backside of, like, <laughs> Palestine or something. I don't know. Like, Kulasas. I don't even know. But they eat rice. So let's say 95% of the world eats rice except for Russia. Um, and we all grew up on a certain style of rice or a certain rice grain. Yeah. It was red rice and as a base for, like, a lot of coastal, coastal cuisine was my rice. My mom loved rice. So, but also I, I want to know why you chose to do fast casual at this point and make it, you know, your food super accessible. Your restaurants have been Esquire, best restaurant in the U.S., or best new restaurant, um, top 10 openings for the New York Times. Um, and, you know, now you're serving things out of paper bowls. When I was looking at, you know, originally I was like, okay, I want to make this like Momofuku, like very... Let's just take the noodles out for the rice. Mm-hmm. And we would have daily things. We just like let's just copy it <laughs> from early ages. Let's just because that's what people do. Right. People don't create anything new. They put put their essence on it. You know, people study a brand and then they figure out how to develop it into their brand. So we looked at that, but we were just like, well, people pay twenty nineteen dollars for a rice bowl. Like, I don't think somebody's gonna pay nineteen dollars for a rice bowl. And can I, can I raise like $1.5 million for my first restaurant? With how many seats and... With how many seats and like, will, will this full service restaurant actually make sense in this community that we want to open up in? That's giving us like a really great rent deal and all these kind of good points. So that was all, that was like factor one. So like 1.5, no, mm-hmm. maybe like 500000 I can raise. Right. And then, like, okay, great. I would love to be downtown, but the rent for the same 1,100 square feet is $22,000. That doesn't make sense. How many rice bowls would I have to sell? A lot. A lot. (laughs) So I said, let's try it. I've never done it. I never worked in a fast casual in my life. Never worked in McDonald's or anything in my whole life. And But I said, I know how to cook food. I know that you, I know how to do cost of goods and look at a P&L. So now that this plate, a plate that you use over and over and over that then just cancels itself out, that that doesn't work. Like this bowl costs 18 cents. Right. So that's actually food cost. That's not actually cost. That's not actually paper goods. But no, I'm, I'm listen, I'm excited about Field Trip. And, you know, Field Trip for me is a restaurant that's fueled from a community of color. Right. So, and you and you want to be in Harlem. Like you made a very, yeah, no, very no, purposeful yeah. choice to be in that neighborhood. Harlem is a like Harlem. Harlem's is the, amazing. Is yeah, a, is, a, is a is a mecca for a lot of things. I think New York has, in any community, they will sway you mentally to tell you don't go there or you shouldn't do this or go here. Right, as they build up one part and they break down one and rebuild it back up, and I think that's what Harlem is. 
you know, Marcus was part of the first, I think the real first wave, the 10-year wave of Red Rooster being open. And a lot of people don't walk around there and like, look, that there's a creperie shop and there's cool coffee shops. People don't go there and see these things. Great wine bars. Great wine bars, you know, if you walk up and down Lenox where we are. But, you know, where, where we are, there hasn't, there's no food below 116th Street. There's one Mexican place it's on 112th in Lenox. But when people think of food in Harlem, they think of everything above 116th. We're slightly, we're in between the block of 115th and 116th. Okay. And the last restaurant that was on that block was like Malcolm X era was a fried fish spot Mm -hmm. that was on the corner where the deli is now that that deli has been there for 40 years on the same block we're on. Um, So yeah, we're, we're, we're excited. I think we're cooking. I think we're cooking some of the best food in New York. I think it's accessible, but it's really, really delicious. And why we're going to add more, why we're going to add more rice bowls on. So like we're going to grow to about nine rice bowls. So we're going to have a jerk chicken bowl with red rice and beans and avocado. We're going to have the fried fish. I'm going to do a a classic, my classic grandma's dish, which is called asopal, which is a soupy rice dish I grew up on. And there's one You can get soupy rice in Harlem. You can get soupy rice on like... And uptown, though you're gonna yeah, have- you can get soupy rice in the Dominican spot. Yeah, you're gonna have competition on your or soupy the, rice, or they have competition. <laughs> um, and I mean, community's always been important to you, right? I mean, when you were at Minton's, you were at the center. I mean, you guys were feeding a homeless population mm-hmm. that lived in the building, and we talked about it when you were running uh, Henry. You even recruited people from like next door homeless shelters to work. Yeah, yeah, at yeah. The I restaurant. Mean, it- so, I mean, how is that? How is community part of the mission? I think the greatest restaurants actually talk to their community. And if you get the community to respect you, regardless whatever community you're in, those are the people that keep the restaurant going. So like Beatrice Inn is in your community and you're going there to eat. Not all right? the time. I can't but, afford it all the time. But you're going there, right? <laughs> but I'm going there, yeah. Yeah. And there's other people that are in this community that are going there, that are keeping those doors of that restaurant open. Of course, people are traveling to it. But I think a lot of people that open up restaurants kind of forget about the peop- community around them. And they get stuck on, oh, it's a destination. Oh, don't worry. Uh, we'll be fine. But it's like, well, have you even like reached out to the community around? Do you go to your community board meetings? Do you talk to people in the street? Do you do these things? So, yeah, I mean, I think my biggest competition when, you, when we talk about communities, like my community's eating red beans and rice from Popeyes for 3.99. Yeah. And it's and that red beans and red rice is really good. It's actually good. It's too salty. It's my all oh, they could pull back on the sodium. But like that's my like airport meal. So sometimes. like that's what I'm getting compared to, right? Like, ooh, wow, that's good for $10. GJ's $10. But I can go to Popeyes and get red rice and beans for 3.99. So I have to actually be better than Popeyes. Well, yeah, no shit. <laughs> And we're not talking like crispy fried chicken. We're talking about red rice and beans. We're talking about red beans and rice. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to talk is about. Is that how you say it? Is it red beans and rice so, or red rice and beans? I say red beans and rice. See, that's a southern thing. See, if you come from like a, if you come from like a Caribbean or a Latino household, you say rice and beans versus beans and rice. Oh, yeah. Beans, no, you said it. You corrected me. Red beans. I didn't mean to correct you. <laughs> It just doesn't flow. It doesn't flow. Rice and beans. Beans and rice. Beans and I don't even know how the fuck I said it. <laughs> you <laughs> said red begin. beans. You said red beans and rice. Red beans and rice. Yeah, that's what I said. Okay. It's I really said, delicious. I said red rice and beans. I, I, <laughs> it's very confusing. Um, 
So how, and again, so how is this project also kind of a representation of your kind of bigger work that you do, which is representing your heritage and being a black chef in New York and America? I think this project is really on, is really based on the places I've traveled in the world and okay. been able to cook. So Singapore and Israel and Ghana and India. So this is less about J.J. Johnson and identity than... Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really kind of just like showing you who I am as a founder. Okay. Like I developed a concept. I put pe- people in, I gave people jobs. Like I'm not the one behind the counter working. Like tonight I'll be behind the counter working, but I'm not behind the counter working. Like I'm in the accounting office. I am talking to my insurance broker. I'm driving talking, a U-Haul. Right, I'm driving a U-Haul to get, <laughs> getting stuff from the U.S. Open. Like I'm setting up the shop. I'm breaking it down. I'm doing all the things in between as the operator on this project. Um, but, you know, all the recipes, everything of those things are me. Of course. Um, I think sometimes people get a little confused because, like, oh, it's like a Caribbean rice bowl shop. And I'm like, should I have done a Caribbean rice bowl shop? In the back of my mind. But I'm like, no, like, actually come taste. Like, I, there's green curry. Like, how did you learn how to make green curry? Like, oh, I was in Singapore. Right. Right? Or... Why are you doing biryani? Like, why, why are you doing this, like, West African, Indian-inspired bowl? Well, biryani is very similar to jollof, mm-hmm. right? Because if you look at what's in the rice bowl. So I'm going, like, really deep on the culture, as I've always done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just showing you, I'm just developing something that I believe people will want to eat every day. Right, you're, and it's a business. And it's a business, yeah. This is like, like I'm tired of hearing people say, oh, we don't, nobody in this industry makes money. If nobody in this industry made money, they wouldn't, we wouldn't keep having restaurants. People wouldn't right. open restaurants just to be like, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to open it just to open it. Like, there's people that actually do make money in this industry, and I look at Field Trip as making money. Right, I mean, everybody needs, like, so many chefs don't have I mean, nobody has a savings account. So many people are living paycheck to paycheck. Right. There's no exit plan for people uh, in the restaurant industry unless you are mega or smart. I was talking to a legendary chef, and he was like, so did you open up in Harlem just because you want it to be your legacy? Or did you actually open in Harlem because the financials like made sense? I was like, I opened in Harlem because the financials made sense. He's like, okay, I think I have an investor for you. Oh, there we go. Right. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you actually are thinking the same way I'm thinking. So you're not like opening up like locale did or everyday table. Like, there's a lot of these places that just open up in urban communities because they think, they believe that, oh, people just want to eat better. People want to eat better everywhere. Right. And if they don't eat better in your restaurant, they just cook it at home because it's still a cooking community. Yeah. So like Oakland is still a cooking community. Charlotte's still a cooking community. Detroit's still a cooking. These communities are still cooking communities. So you can't think that you're going to be like a white person and go in a community and be like, yeah, I'm going to give you a rob. I'm going to give you this beautiful place and it's going to be $2.99. And a person's like, well, if your fries ain't better than McDonald's, I'm going to McDonald's to get their fries if I really want to get French fries. And that's how people think. They don't give a fuck what your ethos is. They don't care about the story. They just want to make sure it tastes good. And I think in the beginning stages of Field Trip, we were trying to sell the journey versus like, here, man, this is good. 
You never had black rice before? Here, hold on. Before you take the bowl, take a sample. Taste it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't like black rice because you don't like the texture, but you still want the salmon with peri-peri? Here's some brown rice. Here's peri-peri salmon. You're going to love it. And, like, introducing the customer to who we are versus, like, giving them this, like, beautiful story. Romantic story. And they're, like, walking out, like, who is this person? And, like, this black rice is, like, why does it feel like that in my mouth? Right. And a couple of times I watch people from our windows and be like, oh, he doesn't like it. Let me run outside. Let me talk to him. Be like, hey, man, yo, my fault. Come back, come back. Or let me give you here. This one's on me. Like, oh, you should have gave me that brown rice. Like, that's how you educate them. Or like people come in like, I want white rice. Yeah, we got, we got white rice. It's just called Carolina Gold. Then they go tell their friends, oh, they have this white rice called Carolina Gold and you need to get it. Okay. That's amazing. Versus... Oh, the original white rice is Carolina gold, and it has gold strips in it. And, and it's it, aged. And, and it's aged and all this stuff. And then they're like, okay, great. And then when they taste it, by the time they taste it, they're like, it's not no gold strip. What is this guy talking about? First, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, that's just white rice. So what are your ambitions for the business, though? I mean, I hope to grow it in the communities that look like Harlem. I mean, okay. Harlem is the, is the foundation for black communities, like, Diddy was selling selling Harlem. He wasn't selling music. He was selling Harlem. Like, this is what people from Harlem look like. This is how they dress. And then every other black community was like, ooh, black excellence, black excellence. That's who we want to be like. That, that's, what, that's what we hope to be able to, well, if it makes it in Harlem, then it makes it everywhere that looks like Harlem. Okay. I hopefully get better rent. I can employ people <laughs> from that community. Right. And do all those things. So... But no, that that's the plan. Will we look to potentially, will we get offers to potentially leave communities that don't look like Harlem? Yeah. But we take, we'll take we take each deal at face value and see if it works for us. And is this, is Field Trip your, I mean, it's obviously your immediate focus, but do you have other? Oh, yeah. yeah I'm always, I'm always working. JJ is always working. I mean, I'll do another cookbook. I'll definitely do another full a couple more full service restaurants okay you know i won't stop talking about the food of the african diaspora i mean i think a lot of people forget that (laughs) me and alexander were the ones and the onlys talking about the food of the african diaspora i remember when we won best new restaurant eater was like ooh, this is like a they're like ooh, i mean harlem really food of african diaspora like really downplayed us and now that's all they want to talk about Right, and the New York Times had a big, beautiful feature. Big feature, right? Yes. Like, P-Ball's never ate in Cecil. Really? No, exactly. I ate in Cecil. You ate at Cecil a bunch of times. <laughs> I mean, like, I think a lot of, I mean, I, and, I, and I have to truly give credit to Alexander. It's like, he had this amazing idea. It's your dog? Um, yes, hold on. One second. <laughs> the dog's ringing the doorbell. It's either my dog or my contractor. Hold on. <laughs> All right, so that was my contractor. Uh, you were saying regarding Isn't like Alexander, you know, Alexander really, really flushed out this idea and really opened the eyes to people that never wanted to write about or understand what the food of the African diaspora was. Like, you, Cecil was open for four years. I think year two of the Cecil being open, Al Guardo Jordan opened up. Solari. Solari, which was still Italian. It was Italian, but he was like cooking these notes. Amazing. Yeah, cooking these notes. But then realized like, hold on, there's a market for me to do something that actually is me. 
right? Then he opened up June Baby. And Mashama Bailey was eating at the Cecil. She was using the Cecil as like a testing ground. Like that's how I met Mashama. I knew Mashama Bailey before she opened up. And I never knew who she was or what she was doing. I just was like, they're like, oh, she's a chef. She worked at Prune. And her sous chef at the time was friends with some friends of mine from college. So like I just knew her through there. And then when she opened up the gray, the gray I was like, oh, What's up, girl? I see you. <laughs> right? And I have so much. I, I, I truly, I'm actually going to cook at her restaurant for Edna Lewis dinner. Oh, um, when? That sounds so fabulous. Yeah, I feel like the 14th of October. But but that was a southern restaurant. So, like, that's slightly different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you see years later, you see Kwame come out with his restaurant, Kith and Ken. And now, like, people are writing about it like if it was, they've never seen this before. And it was like, well, if you look at that menu, you see stuff from Cecil. And if you look at all their menus, you see stuff from Cecil. The narrative, how people speak about it. I mean, it's in our book. So I'll never lose of being like the ambassador of cooking the food of the African diaspora. I'll probably push it in a, a couple of different directions. I might do like derivatives. I might uh, dissect it. I might not just make it a whole. I might say, this is a West African restaurant. This is Caribbean Chinese. Mm-hmm. And this is... Indian, Indian, West Af- um, Bayesian Indian, right? This right. is Afroport. Like, I might get that lucky in my life to be able to do different restaurants in, in different ways that talk about the African diaspora. And maybe there's one at the top that's like the compass. Um, but yeah, I have a bunch of ideas and I'm going to push. But yeah, I'll have field trip and hopefully be. Some people call me like the rice god, but I don't think I'm the rice god. Glenn <laughs> Roberts is the rice god, and yeah, I don't, I don't think you're the rice god yet. No, yeah, no, no not Glenn, quite. Glenn is the rice god, and uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna give I'm you just, that. Uh, no, I'm good. I'm <laughs> just uh, I'm yeah, I'm just here making delicious rice and sourcing it from farmers. Okay, and I mean, what are you excited about in food outside of your restaurant right now? Hmm, I, I love Nightshade in LA. Mm-hmm. I think May's doing an amazing job. I love seeing Detroit, staying true to Detroit, to like developers giving deals to African-Americans to open up restaurants and coffee shops and places. I'm I'm excited at what Angela's doing with The Standard. Yes. Across the board, like globally. Um, and like, it's Angela Demayuga. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't I can't pronounce Angela's last name properly, but thank you. Yes. Um, she's like crushing that role, that new role of carving it out and giving p- other people hope that you can do other things in the culinary world. And still be true to yourself. She's still in fashion. She's still cooking, um, but not like cooking in a restaurant. But she's still like doing pieces and giving recipes. I'm excited for Nicole Taylor at Thrillist. Yes, me too. I'm really excited to see what she does with that site. So, yep. um, I, you know, I'm very excited for that. And I, I'm I'll put a little hope out there. I'm hoping that food writers or all writers are just fair to everybody. And I'm, I'm nervous that there's this big swing of like women and people of color and then you forget about one class of people and then everybody there rises up and then five years from now, the tide turns again and then you just start writing about white men again and there's no balance. God, I hope not. Right? It, it, is, it is difficult as someone who's, who's writing um, because I, I saw the the tide turn, I think you were maybe influential in that in, in some ways, uh, about really doing more research and trying to better represent 
black cooks and women cooks and people of color. But stories right now aren't as sex. People don't want to just know about a white dude who's cooking, like, really, you know? Well, hold on. So this is what I... So, like, you do the work. Why I commend you. I have a lot of respect for you. You actually do the work. You go out. You really look. Like, you go... When you were at Star Chef, you were going into communities. You were reaching out to people like, hey... Are there, these are the restaurants I'm looking at. Am I missing something? Is there something exciting happening? What I don't like is that as, the, as writers like yourself write about women and people of color, and those articles are great, then you have people as in critics that don't still just write about the same people, right? And like Red, Red Hook Tavern I think is great. I love Chef there. It's phenomenal. He should get a review. But if writer, if critics can go to Red Hook Tavern, then they can go to who? Yes. The Bronx. Oh my gosh, Red Hook is. I barely ever. Get There's to no Red public Hook. transportation. No. You can go to the Bronx, right? You would come to Harlem. Like I'm actually tired of hearing people say Harlem's too far. It's like every major train goes there. So, you know, balance. I, I want to see a little bit of balance, and I think some of the young white chefs that are peers of mine are getting the grunt of what their mentors <laughs> have done. And, and for every couple of times, I would love to see, you know, a white guy, young white kid that's doing something really great get written about. That's so funny hearing that from you. Because I'm just, I'm watching the tie, I'm watching, it's becoming imbalanced. And then I'm watching writers write about things that they have no clue. Yeah. And then, or the editor doesn't know how to edit it properly, so then it comes out false. You know, this is why if 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 the if the if the New York Times is balanced with, and I'm using them because they're the pinnacle, but if they're balanced with people of color on their staff, you wouldn't have these issues. No, of course not. Which right. Is- but you have a white woman from the South trying to write about black people, and then people that are of color, are like, girl, what you writing about? Yeah. Why are you saying that? Why would you even ask that question? You know, and I've declined a lot of articles recently because, like, I don't want that person to write about me. I don't like the topic. I don't even want to talk about that, right? Like, I want to talk about how many black people actually own. Right. You know? Which we were discussing earlier. Yeah. So, like, I don't want to talk about how I was treated in the kitchen. Like, you already know how we were. You right. already know that story. Yeah. Somebody talked about that 20 times now. Why do you keep wanting to talk about it? And that's where reporting is still the same like you might be writing about us but you're writing about it in a negative light you're not writing about it in a positive in a positive light. celebration mm-hmm. okay i'll take that all, so. of, all of my journalist listeners <laughs> out there and then we're about time to eat i think that i'm a little nervous about this apparently not rice i'm excited i hope it but i put it in raw and it just had a liquid and it was supposed to so i don't know this is one thing I'm, I don't test these recipes. So you just cook it and then we eat it together. And I've had one that's really bad. That's just good. one though. Well, um, I hope all your listeners come up to Harlem. They will. Oh yeah, tell. Okay, so give so me the address. Field trip is on 109 Lennox or 109 Malcolm X Boulevard. Google will put you at 109 Malcolm X Boulevard. It's right in front of the two and the three train. So you hop off literally 100 feet from any of the exits. Um, everything on the menu is under 15 bucks. We have uh, beer and wine on tap. Or even have like sake and some stuff in cans when you probably did come. You, did you add White Claw? I am probably going to add White Claw. <laughs> I'm adding like McBride Sisters Black Magic. I'm adding like sake in a juice box. I'm adding okay. soju. So you can eat rice balls, drink good juice. 
Yeah, or and, and our beer and wine is six dollars. You can't get that anywhere in New York. No, that's like Poconos. That's like Pennsylvania Poconos prices. That's really inexpensive. I like get, Nashville. Get lit. I like <laughs> <laughs> you can get really lit in Harlem at my spot. So just come with some of your friends and drink up. All right, you ready to do this lunch? No problem. Yeah. All right. Lunch is served. Uh, okay, so um, just a brief casserole, a really sad casserole update. Uh, the wild rice casserole with all those beautiful ingredients has been in the oven for an, over an hour and a half. Uh, and it, it. Why can't I eat the other stuff, not, not the wild rice? The wild rice, what didn't cook? Why it, can't I eat the other? It tastes so good. You can, JJ's being very nice. No, right I stuck my finger in it and it was good. <laughs> Should we make some rice and then put the stuff on top of more rice? I yeah, or you, I see there's like mushrooms and stuff. I could just work my way around it. Anyway, guys, this is a ma- major execution fail, <laughs> which is super, which is great. It's, I have a lot of faith in this cookbook on, on episode one. It does taste good. Tastes really good. But it is... It's more like a stew. It's yes, like, yes, yes. It's more than a stew than a casserole. Um, which, if that's what we wanted, then that's what I. Well, want. I'll just come back for dinner another time. Okay, that would be great. So, I sent JJ home hungry, and I really need to understand what went wrong with this recipe from Miss William F. Collins in Blacksburg, Virginia. Ms. Collins, if you're listening, I think you sent the wrong instructions to Southern Living. Now, I did make a few alterations. I sauteed fresh vegetables instead of using dried and canned. I used stock instead of water and chicken granules, like obviously. I also got fresh thyme and marjoram from the farmer's market instead of using dried herbs. But it was a greasy mess. It didn't cook in time. I truly, I truly need to know. So I called in the casserole doctor. What did I do wrong? Now, I'm glad you freely admitted to me you deviated from the recipe. Although I think I can say that no one is happy for the results. Hmm. You see, I can't imagine why anyone would want to make changes here. It starts with green pepper flake. Now, anyone who knows anything about ancient Creole medicine knows that green pepper flake is brimming with healing properties. Now, in fact, you know, I take a spoonful a day as a diuretic to flush the toxins from my sinful body. And then there's the cooking properties, which were displayed most acutely in that glorious film, Back to the Future 2. Oh, when they rehydrate those pizzas. Mm. Now, unfortunately, the stuff is becoming all too scarce at the market, which is why I assume you chose to go the trendy route of using fresh green pepper instead. And, you know, now I'm looking at this watery, oily mess down at the bottom of your casserole dish. And we can assume that the grease is the fatty remnants of improperly rendered and drained sausage. Now, of course, when that grease coated the rice, it prevented the rice from soaking up the moisture of the dish. And now, alternative casserole doctors might tell you that, uh, it's a sign your sister is pregnant with triplets. But, what I think is more apt is that this recipe calls for wild rice. Now, as we all know, wild rice is made up of 3.42% twigs. Now, they're fabulous for texture, but, you know, being twigs, they're made of wood, and they don't absorb water. That's why they use to make boats. You know, finally, 
I just realized this and I cannot stress this enough. This recipe has only one cup of cheese to cover a 13 by 9 inch dish. And one cream a can of concentrated soup. And no other dairy to speak of. Well, that's not enough sticking power to hold your otteries together as a casserole's meant to do. That'll be $5,013.32, please. Thank you for your patronage. Oof. Thanks, good doctor. I am thankful that I purchased that casserole insurance when I launched the podcast this year. Now, listeners, to guarantee that you're going to have a good dinner tonight, I suggest you skip the recipe from this week. No casserole necessary. Instead, head to Field Trip Harlem, where you can enjoy one of JJ's fabulous rice bowls. But I do promise that next week's casserole is going to be more successful. In fact, it's going to be creamy.